had in mind to to map out a little bit some of the basic teachings of, of Buddha Dharma that, are, that I found very useful over the years. But then when Noemi announced the day-long retreat, I thought I would give a little sneak preview. And so those who are not coming will... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I assume all of you will be there on Friday. And, but nevertheless, this, these teachings are often repeated, and so I'll repeat them again. So I had an interesting conversation. I was leading a retreat in another city over the weekend, and I had the good fortune, as I often do, of meeting with many, many people one-on-one. -on -one. And each time I sit with somebody, I'm, I fall in love a little bit, each person. I mean, it's just incredible how everyone has, has this intrinsic uniqueness and uh, a certain kind of presence. Every single person here has, has Buddha nature, you could say. Yet I also know that when I meet with somebody, I may be seeing what I think is their, their Dharma essence, their, their unique expression of life. And they may even be, have moments where they really just feel themselves to be what they are, who they are, not, uh, not, um, not some story or idea, but just really be themselves. But, but I also know that most of the time, people are like us, are pretty much incarnated in or living in a version of ourselves, in the version of ourselves that plays in our mind. The, I call it the virtual version, I call it the imagined me, I call it the, the Buddha called it Sakaya Ditti or self-view, the view of ourself. And the view of ourself is a, is a, a story, it's a narrative, it's a composite uh, version that's been called together through everything that's ever happened to us. Uh, and in that way, it's, it's unique, completely unique. Each of us has been forged by everything that's ever happened to us. And that's also an amazing thing that makes a our story, one that I would like to hear. You know, I, many of you were around here in May when my, I, I, I wonder if I should say this again because it changes the energy in the room, but needless to say, we had a tragedy in our family and my nephew's wife was uh, just suddenly uh, bowled over by a boulder and six months pregnant died, just like that instantly. And so it caused a huge reverberation in, in the family. And something that's been very helpful to my nephew, recently there was a gathering, and maybe they have them in San Francisco, where a lot of people came together and people just told their story. And that there it was such a healing thing to be able to tell the story of what happened and to hear other people's story. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And 
Anytime I hear somebody's history, their story, I'm, I'm really moved by the uniqueness of it, everyone. And, and because all of us have a story of if you were born in this plane of existence, if you believe in planes of existence, this is a plane that's filled with uh, its beauty and wonder, but boy, it's got just so many kinds of pain that, can, that will happen and can happen. And, you know, we can't forget right now the the just countless thousands that are just over the hill uh, dealing with the fire. And we're dealing with the fire. But that story of ourselves that plays through our mind is really a partial truth. And it is often a story, once it gets called together into an internal narrative, it becomes the story of the me who has a problem that needs to be solved. It becomes the story of time, the story of... Uh, it's, it's, it's not quite often the story of I am what I am. It's not often the story as I accept myself as I am. I work with my, the situation that it presents itself in my life. It's often a story of some measure of struggle. And that leads back to my one-on-one -on -one conversation. Somebody said that uh, they had, this was on the second day of the retreat that I was leading, and they came in and they said, you know, I was, uh, I was sitting and there was some restlessness. I was really struggling. I said, there was, I said, well, what do you mean by struggling? They said there was some restlessness and some discursive thought. And I said, well, where is the struggle in restlessness and discursive thought? And the person I was talking to couldn't find it except for they just didn't like this restlessness and discursive thought. They wanted it to change. So this gets back to the, the construction of our identity view is often a construction of a kind of craving, a kind of desire that repeats itself over and over. It's actually quite maniacal this chronic desire of wanting things to be different than the way they are that actually deprives us when it goes unnoticed. When it's noticed, we notice struggling in our mind. Struggle is just struggle. And it's a changing condition. When it goes unnoticed, we incarnate as the struggler. And that struggle, once there's a struggle, once there is a struggler, a struggler is bound in time, and the time is not now, but it is then. It's when I finally come to the end of my struggle. So struggling is both of the past, something happened, and it's of the imagined future. Struggle in real time is, is just a, a mental state. And 
once the light of attention lands on that mental state called struggling, when I notice, oh, this is struggle. Few things happen. The struggler vanishes. There's no struggler in a moment of noticing struggle. And the struggling itself melts away. It, we can't find it anymore. It's part of our story. It's part of the story that distorts reality in such a way that, that it entrances us into believing we cannot find relief and wholeness and ourselves right here. Right here. So the gift, obviously, of, of practice is we, we try to find what we actually experience here in reality. And not necessarily make our sense of well-being, our happiness, our relief dependent on solving a problem. You, and I maybe say this every week, I don't know, I'm getting, I'm teaching in so many places, I don't, I, I can't remember what I've said to who, <laughs> not to mention there's a kind of alchemy of you hit a certain age where you have seen lots of senior moments and then, and then share a lot of Dharma, and I have no idea if I say this every week. Now I can't even remember what I was about to say. <laughs> But I don't need to remember. Right this moment, I don't need to remember. And when I just attune to my present experience, let's say I felt a, a moment of not knowing, that's just a moment of not knowing. So what? Now, if I had the idea I have to know. I'm the I'm the I'm the guru. I'm the you know I have to that in that moment I incarnate as the one who has who's got a problem that has to be solved, and that is completely optional. That is optional. So this I do know that this last group I shared with them the story when I went to see my teacher, one of my teachers, his name is H.W.L. Punja. I went to see him in India. This is now 28 years ago, 20, almost 29 years ago. And in my, well actually I had two very meaningful conversations and both of them were conversations where the, the interaction highlighted the way that I was constructing myself as a problem to be solved. The first one was my first conversation with him after having traveled a long time to, to reach him and, uh, and all the way in this little 
town called Hardwar in India. Maybe some of you in the room have been there. It's on the Ganges River. And I had, um, I had gone with a friend and we kind of made our way. And, I, and at this time, I, w- I had been doing a lot of practice and I was really on fire. And I wanted, uh, I definitely had a problem. I wanted to be liberated. <laughs> I wanted to be free. That one desire, no other desire would fulfill. And I traveled to see him and I met him for the first time and I, and I was kind of, I'd been around a little bit, I'd done a lot of practice, I'd read a lot of books and I knew the language and I said to him, you know, I know already that the seeker and what is being sought are the same. Just seeking myself. I know that the seeker and the sought are one. But I've come halfway around the world to see you, so I must want something from you. And he looked at me very intently, and he said, remove the seeker and remove the sought. Try it for a moment. The moment that he said that to me, I went completely unconscious. The next thing I knew, what brought me back into consciousness was the sound of this guttural laugh, this deep laugh. And the laugh was heard and then I realized it was coming out of my mouth. <laughs> and that's what woke me up. And, and the effect of that is uh, he had bypassed this whole identity of one with a problem that needed to be solved, the seeker and the sought, that even though that's very poetic language, it's a trap. It's a trap. We're continually, hypnotically inducing a trap for our mind, thinking I can't be free now. Some form. So my, the, the moment that I woke up, it was just like, a, just like a, um, a blast of joy and peace. And literally for 30 days, I could hardly give rise to a thought. It was amazing. I, it was totally not personal. The personal had vanished. The personal had, had been a kind of shroud that I had no, didn't even have an idea about. But... Even though the, I didn't have a lot of thoughts for the next 30 days, I did, you know, there's still the remnants of the habit. And it just so happened that I became uh, quite ill, literally within the next 24 hours. And, and just uh, delirious, high fever, and, and eliminating from every possible place on my body, and really funky and, and finally I was you know just well enough to drag my body along this long walkway along a few bridges in hardware and then cross the river and go to this cottage where the teacher was staying and and just so uncomfortable but I wanted to see the teacher again and 
kind of drag my body there. And when I got to the corner of the little block that he was living in, I, I bought a, ch- a, a clump of bananas and everything seemed so intense even to buy some bananas. And then as I was walking, some monkeys jumped out of a tree and took the bananas and I just went a little crazy. And when I finally made it to the, see the teacher again. And he looked at me with another one of those moments. This guy knew how to, how to just deconstruct whatever was going on. And he said, how are you feeling? You know, he had been sending me chunks of cheese and which I could never figure out. And, and, and he said, well, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me and he said, where is sick? And in real time, I couldn't find sick. There were still some symptoms present, but the whole identity of sick, the whole story, once I was incarnated as somebody who's sick, it was a problem that had to be solved. I had to get over it. But when it was just the symptoms, huge wave of, of vitality came over me. Still had some symptoms, but there was no longer the identity of sick. You know, sometimes people get really sick, and it's hard to, you know, I'm, that kind of illness is something you can, it's not as, it's easier to lift out of that identity. But even those who get chronically ill, exacerbate, compound their stress by adding an identity around it, which is completely optional. This is self-view. And this view is, it must be, it must be um, seen through. You must be able to, we as, if you want to be free, we have to be able to to make the shift from simply being carried along by that, that, uh, that view of myself as a problem that's always measuring. You know, one of the ways that that, that, that measuring mind works that's I'm um, a problem to be solved, it's the, in the most, maybe the most insidious way that it shows up in our life is the comparing mind. Is that, it's that measuring mind. I'm above, I'm a below, am I equal? You know, am I getting in? And this comparing mind doesn't describe anybody. It describes an imagined you. The imagined you that has a problem to be solved. Being either better than, less than, or equal to. Where is that comparing mind on present evidence? Are you comparable in this moment? Any person here? If you don't consult your memory? So we all universally want to be happy. But we have to stop believing the story that I am unhappy. And if we're unhappy, what is unhappy here and now? Other than a series of moods, expectations, but your present time awareness cuts right through this pattern of memory and 
and mental habit, it cuts through. And you see that in the moment, happiness is a changing condition, unhappiness is a changing condition, measuring is a changing condition. None of it is real. That's why when the Buddha gave his pith instructions, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard the entire teaching. Whoever has practiced this has practiced the entire teaching. Whoever realizes this, the fruit of liberation through non-clinging has realized the whole teaching. Non-clinging to this view of being a problem that needs to be solved. You don't need it. Even though it's, there is a kind of morbid pleasure in being somebody who is a struggler, who's struggling, it gives you a sense of place, identity, but it deprives you of, of the, as one Tibetan teacher says, the natural great peace and ease that is the natural great peace and ease of your own state as you are. So our practice, even just a simple experience of coming on Tuesday night, you may step out of the house of your identity, story of yourself. And I think that's why we, maybe why we love to sit is because we give ourselves up a little bit. Of course, if you practice to make yourself better, it causes stress. It becomes a personal thing. As if, it, if you're really practicing, it's, it's simply being in a state of lucidity, of choiceless love, non-reactiveness. And not a cold aloofness, but basically loving what you see. But not reacting to it, not pushing it away, not grasping. Knowing that happiness as Gendon Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, says, does not come through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go, letting be. He says, don't strain yourself. There's, there's nothing to, uh, to do or to undo. Don't strain yourself. Whatever arises in your mind is like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp and identify with the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. But as soon as you open this tight fist of grasping, that's what we do every moment. We cut through, just mindfulness. As soon as you open that tight fist of grasping, Space is there. Open and inviting, comfortable. So as he says, make use of this spaciousness, this ease, this natural ease. Just don't search any further. 
Just don't, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to want, and nothing missing. No, I have a book back here. All beings by nature are Buddha. That means awake. As ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there's no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst. Like a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Lost on dark paths of ignorance. from path to path. When shall we be freed from this cycle of struggle, of becoming? I just changed the wording. I hope it's okay. O meditation, to this the highest praise. Those who meditate even once wipe away beginningless crimes. Where are all the dark paths then? The pure land itself is near. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. Much more, those who turn about and bear witness to self-nature. Self-nature that is no nature go far beyond any mere doctrine. How boundless and free is the sky of awareness, just being aware. How bright the full moon of wisdom. Truly, is anything missing now? Nirvana is right here before our eyes. This very place is the lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. So the, the slight little shift here that we can play with maybe for the next week. Because I think, I think universe, not universally, but so many of us have incarnated, have become strugglers recently. And we have deprived ourselves of a peace. We've been postponing relaxing till we reach the end of the rainbow. And we had a little end of the rainbow with the, for so, those who have certain political persuasion. But there's always conditions that our mind creates for happiness, for relief. And into our imagination comes the sense of, I'm, I'm not okay, the world's not okay, and until this happens, I can't relax. And then we walk around blaming conditions for our sense of well-being. And then more and more reactive to the, to the way things are. 
And then part of that, the narrative about reacting to the way things are, is it shouldn't be that way. There shouldn't be this problem. And so we, we work on the problem, which of course we have to work on every problem. But we don't have to deprive ourselves of enjoying the ride. It's because we all tend to, I know I shared this in the last few weeks, but for those who weren't here, the great story about the Buddha, some guy went to tell him about all his problems, you know, with his wife, with the world, with his kids, and they weren't turning out the way he wanted them to, and, and you know, a litany of problems, don't, struggles. Any of you relate to that? But then uh, he said, you know, some of them go away and some of them, another keeps coming back. And, and uh, he says, what can you help me with about my problems? And the Buddha says, I can't help you. I can't help you with all your problems. He says, everybody has 83 problems. Some go away and some, and then others come. Others come. Because I can't help you with the 83 problems, but I can help you with the 84th problem. What's the 84th problem? The 84th problem is you don't think you should have any problems. So this is our mind. Is something's wrong. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with the world. Something's wrong. Into that world of our imagination, we... Not only does the world become something we have to solve, but I have to become something I solve. And all that is just sakaya ditti, it's self-view. And we, can, we don't get rid of it. Every one of us, every one of us has reinforced a version of ourself that is not quite sufficient enough, healed, that's struggling. But we don't have to uh, operate from that view about ourselves. We can relate to it. We can notice, oh, that's the identity view. And identity views are in some ways no different than sensations. They arise and they fade. They are empty. There's no there there. It has no inherent existence, this thing called ego, or I, or me. But it is a very useful and functional way of orienting ourselves in the world, and a way of thinking. But it doesn't have any inherent reality. So it's something you can notice. And who are we in this process? We are the Buddha. Just awake. Not defined by memory. Not defined by our hopes. Just awake. We are what we are on present evidence. What are you if you don't consult your history in real time? What are you if you don't consult your hopes? What is your direct experience of yourself? So when we practice, we get used to being the Buddha, noticing the Dharma, noticing whatever it is that's presenting itself. 
in our mind, in our body, and our world. Not only do we know we remain as the Buddha noticing Dharma, but we also notice how is this experience that's presenting itself, how am I relating to it? Am I struggling with it? Am I pushing something away? Am I trying to make something happen? This is the, these are the poisons in the mind that create stress. And nothing to do or undo. Once you notice what's going on, it's all, it all self-liberates. It loosens. So, no need to strain. No need to struggle. See you, Kevin. Nothing to do or undo. Nothing to want and nothing missing. Everything unfolds by itself. May we all see through the self-illusion because that will help us see through the illusion of others. Because when we're caught up in I am the one who, who needs to solve a problem, where it's very difficult for us to see other people's problems. It's very difficult to, to really be, to have our heart unleashed, our energy unleashed to be of benefit, to be a beacon in this world. As the poet, either Rumi or Hafez or one, yeah, I think it's Hafez, in his poem called Admit Something, he said, everyone you see, you say to them, love me, love me. Of course, you don't say this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still though, think about this, the great pull in us to connect why not become the one who lives with the full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? May you all be have the full moon in each eye, may we all be liberated, and may, our, may the unfurling of our, of our love touch all the hearts of so many people who are suffering right now, including ourselves, to whatever degree we, have, uh, we are struggling. Anyway, be free, banish struggle from your vocabulary. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your generosity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.